Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. There are lots of amazing Pele stories going around today, but I think the coolest by a distance comes from our friend Fionn Davenport. Listen to this one. I was in school with Pele's son, Edson, in New York in the late 70s, and the great man came to our house a couple of times to pick him up after birthday parties. He played football with us and showed us how to take a penalty, and I'll never forget my father's face when he met his hero. I mean, Fionn, you could have given us this information when we were deciding who to take the penalties in our penalty shootout in the semi-final of the 2017 Fair Play Cup, but listen... That's, that's probably for another day. You're welcome to the Second Captain's Football Podcast. Yesterday at 3.27pm local time, a statement from a Sao Paulo hospital confirmed the death of the great Pele, our dear king of football, as he's described in the statement. There is a ton of amazing footage going around the last 24 hours. You should check out the video we tweeted of Pele playing for Santos in Daily Mount Park in 1972. Mark used a number of shots from that one in our opening sequence for our TV show a few years back. The Pele did a first video. I don't know how I haven't seen it. It's got about 30 million views. I hadn't seen it before. It just shows a load of different footballers over the years pulling off various tricks and then splicing them together with Pele doing those tricks in the first place many years before. That was the nub of Erling Haaland's tribute. Everything you see any player doing, Pele did it first. RIP said Haaland. Interestingly, for, for somebody who scored approximately let's just let's just say let's just give him the 1,281 goals for now for somebody who scored 1,281 goals if the initial tributes are anything to go by his most revered moment on a football pitch is a chance he missed can only but feel that justice has been done Postal Pelé speaking away there's a beautiful pass for him he's round the goalkeeper just let him run off and he's gone no I've seen that dummy and the Uruguay goalkeeper at the 1970 World Cup pop up all over the place since yesterday's news. Way more than any of Pele's many, many goals. And certainly for sheer audacity, it was a hell of a moment. Coincidentally, by the way, today's show was supposed to be about the new Ronaldo documentary, the Brazilian Ronaldo. Possibly the closest Brazil has come to producing another Pele. But with the news of Pele's passing, we'll hold that Ronaldo chat till next week. And instead today, we are reposting a conversation Ken had with Tim Vickery last year. This was 
was around the release of the Pele documentary on Netflix. So thank you so much for your support of the show. Do have a happy, what are we at, December 30th now? So have a happy new year. We'll have a brand new pod for you on Monday, our first one of 2023, about all the football happening over the next few days. Until then, enjoy Tim Vickery on Pele. Great to talk to you as always. My pleasure. Let's kick the ball around talking about one of the all-time greats. Why not? Well, if I if I gave you the following quote, I've never thought I was better than anybody else. I'm lucky I was brought up with these values. Would you recognize these instantaneously as the words of the great Pelé? No. No, I wouldn't. Uh, I know a lot of people like to talk about his humility, how humble he is. Uh, and it's true and it's false. People are complex and they're contradictory. The, one of the first people uh, who saw what he was going to be is a, a Brazilian. He was a, he was a he was a dramatist called Nelson Rodriguez, but he's probably Brazil's most important football writer, as well as being uh, a leading playwright. Uh, and uh, right from the start, he was the first one to call Pele the king. This is before the '58 World Cup. And one of the things that he identified in Pelé, the player and the person, was an absolute lack of all humility. <laughs> now, you, you say, uh, who, you ask him after the game, who was the best on the field? And he'll say, I was. Uh, and um, Nelson Rodriguez saw this as an immense virtue uh, and as was something capable of changing Brazil. And I think Pelé did that. Just a little bit of context here. Uh, and remember that in the 1920s, science itself was racist. The idea of different races having different characteristics was science itself at that time. Now, Brazil had a, a multiracial football team and there, there were ideas of innate inferiority 
in them in football. In 1950, the World Cup in 1950 on home ground, great side, but they lose it just at the end of the, of, of, of the final minutes of the final game against Uruguay. Oh, no, we're bottle boys. We'll never amount to anything. We're inferior. 1954, they go and play the great Hungarians in the quarterfinal. And before the game, they're whipped up into a mad patriotic fervour. They're they're told to go out and avenge Brazil's deaths in the Second World War. Quite what Hungary had to do with that, no one really knows. They all kissed the flag and they went out and they kicked the crap out of the Hungarians in the Battle of Bern. But at least they hadn't bottled it, you know, but but still, oh, we've crumbled under the pressure and, and, and so on. Those ideas of innate mongrel inferiority on the football field die in 1958 and Pele is, is is a big part of the reason for that I mean it's the the point about his absolute lack of humility is hilarious because in this film you know he he repeatedly um affects uh, like a almost ostentatious modesty you know like uh I've never believed it, there is in, in in such a thing as the best player in the world to be the best player in the world you need to be better than everyone in every position you know and that's tricky I mean what he while he also he also reveals that he told his father his grieving father in 1950 who's just seen Brazil lose to the World Cup final and he he's like 10 year old nine year old or whatever age he is at the time and he says don't worry dad I'll win the World Cup for you so he's got a little bit of ego going on but it's as though it what what struck me about it was he obviously this is obviously the way he thinks you should behave like with total modesty it's not like a case of you know I'm the greatest that that it seems like that was not really the way to go on in Brazil of Pele's time. Well, it, it, it comes out from time to time. And I remember going into the, the 2006 World Cup. It seems either sad or ridiculous to think this at the time. But going into the 2006 World Cup, it was common to believe that this was going to be the tournament when Ronaldinho proved that he was better than Pele. I remember that being a headline on a, on a big Brazilian magazine. Uh, and uh, at the end of Brazil's first game, it was a narrow win over Croatia, Pelé could hardly wait to get across to the Brazilian press and say that Ronaldinho had been the worst player on the field. Um, you know, and he, he's, uh, he's immensely proud of his legacy. So he should be. You don't build up a legacies like Pelé without a, little, without a fair little bit of ego along the way. Uh, and uh, ever since he, he hung up his boots, one of his, his priorities has been protecting that legacy. Um, he, I think part of this, Ken, is a story of the failings of journalism um, because the, the, the press, too much that was written about him was, was hagiography. And even for me, the greatest, my inspiration, Hugh McIlvanny, uh, wrote pieces about Pelé where, you know, he concludes everything about him is great. Uh, and uh, there, was, there was too simple a kind of, dichotomy built up between you know Pele the good guy and Maradona the bad guy and what we've seen just in recent years is a kind of generational rebellion against Pele um, with younger generation thinking firstly uh, well you know what did he actually do on the field who did he who did he do it against and secondly well he's a bit of a square isn't he you know the, the, the younger generation responding more to the, the kind of spontaneous rebellion of a Maradona rather than the calculated being with the system of Pelé and so there's there's been I think something of a generational backlash against him I think the excellent thing about this documentary and the debate about Pelé 
is there's now a chance to humanize him, to to work out that this isn't what even Hugh McElvany, even the great Hugh McElvany was writing, you know, this almost paragon of virtue. There's a human being there, you know, and uh, a human being with extraordinary drive because you don't become as great as Pelé was. And he was unbelievably great. He was a machine for playing football. But you don't become that great without having an almost insane, almost mentally unhealthy drive within you. Now, I see Pelé as almost the perfect synthesis of his parents. There are two motivating forces in life, I think, and one is pride and the other is fear. And he had both of them so strong. The pride came from his dad, who was a very, very good footballer uh, and took immense pride in being a good footballer and had a, had a nice, easygoing nature and a lovely smile about him. You see aspects of that in Pelé. The fear comes from his mum. Now, his mum was a very, very strong character at a time when, for married women, there are almost no avenues for that, that strength to, uh, uh, to be expressed. And a lot of that strength is expressed, becomes expressed in a fear fear of being unable to provide, fear of poverty. And when, when Pele's father suffered a, suffers a, a serious injury on his what, what should be his big break as a footballer, and it plunges the family into a poverty without hope, that's a defining moment in his life as well. Because then in order to become a footballer, he has to, become, he has to overcome all of the maternal resistance. Because this is a time when there's not a great deal of money in the game. You know, some of the, the Brazil's biggest name players are signing blank contracts for the, the, the club to fill in the, form, fill in the terms afterwards. The Brazil is starting to grow. If you get an education, there are, there are secure jobs available in the civil service and so on. And Pele's mum really didn't want him to be a footballer. In order to overcome that resistance, he has to show that he's going to give it everything. And part of giving it everything is the fear of it not turning out right, the fear of poverty. I, I think that Pelé will probably go to his grave still incapable of feeling financially secure. That's the that, that that's the the, the harm that, that child poverty does to a to 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 a, to a soul. I think, uh, and uh, you put those two together, the pride and the fear coupled with the athletic virtues that, that, that he's been born with, and you get almost the perfect footballing machine. Mm. I mean, do you have any uh, explanation for why he seems to be so far ahead of everybody when you you look at footage of the time? I mean, there's the, the 1958 final footage, people might be familiar with this even if they haven't seen the film, there's the first goal scored by Sweden, Niels Liedholm. And honestly... The goal looks like something out of a journalist match that you might see before, like a, a final of some kind. It's just, you're kind of saying this guy. And Liedholm, I think, was one of the top strikers in Serie A at the time. Um, it did seem as though uh, he was kind of playing football from, a, from the future very much in, the, in that period. I agree. Um, if you really want to see it, well, he says it, it's his best game and uh, it's the best I've ever seen from him. Um, the the final of the old Intercontinental Cup, the champions of Europe and South America against Benfica at the end of 62, when he's absolutely in his pomp. He's filled out more for that skinny kid in the 58 World Cup. Uh, and uh, Santos of Brazil have narrowly won the first leg in, in, in Brazil 3-2. Benfica are favourites back on home ground. And Pelé puts Santos 5-0 up. 
you know, either scoring or making goals. And he's just, he's charging through uh, great defenders as, as if he's like from another species. It's like, is it Brian Glover in Kez, you know, when he's a school teacher charging through these little kids, you know, saying, pretending to be Bobby Charlton. Um, part of it, I think, is that he, he, and again, motivated by pride, but also by fear. You, you, can't, you can't take the fear out of the equation because that's the thing that keeps on pushing him forward. He's in a, a, a physical condition which is far, far superior to, uh, to those around him. And it, he, he does. He, he looks like a player from, from the future because he's faster, he's fitter, he's, he's, he's quicker. He's worked out all of, all of the techniques. He, he's applied his mind, even his breathing, to how he controls the ball on the, on the chest. He's worked that out on his own. If he has a certain breathing pattern, it'll be easier to, to control the ball. He is absolutely driven and absolutely dedicated because he's spurred on by excesses of pride and excesses of fear. Well, what do you think? What effect do you think fear then had on his behavior? I mean, okay, one of the themes of the film, certainly the second half of the film, is is um, it kind of traces how Pele is is uh, is sort of rising with Brazil in these great years of this late democracy, fifty eight to sixty four, where things seem to be going well in general in the country. He's kind of the symbol of this rising country, you know, young and strong and successful. Uh, and everyone's having a great time. Then there's a military coup, and things start to get a little bit uh, darker. But not for Pelé, who continues to be, you know, the the toast of the nation, um, the best footballer in the world, uh, hailed by everybody. Kind of cozied up to, to well, certainly he he's cozied up to by the regime. But one of the the, the, the there are people in this film who who criticize him for. Well, basically, basically, say Pele could have done more. You know, I mean, he because he was he was unaffected by this, and he says himself that it, life didn't really change much for me. Um, that he turned a blind eye. Uh, that he could have he could have stood up uh, to be something more than than what he was, and and that he he let Brazil down by his behavior. I mean, you know, there, there's a few there, there's a lot to talk about with this. I think because there's a lot said about this, which I I find difficult to to really um take a face value but i just wondered what your what your initial thoughts are on his on his behavior should he have have been more of a kind of counter regime figure the the military government that took over in in 64 took over with uh, and it, it's something that subsequently people didn't like to remember but it took over with a lot of popularity um, a lot has been made of, of a student demonstration against the military government at the end of the 60s um, that had a, a hundred thousand out in you know, a march of a hundred thousand. Uh, back in 64, you know, when the military took over, the right wing were able to put, put a million people on the streets. Um, there, there was mass support for the military government, which certainly at the start was not especially hardline. There, there, there was a project there of national development. And the, the, the early years of the military government are still seen in Brazil as the economic miracle. It was a time when economically the country was developing. Now, that, that development, uh, it was a short-lived process because it, it concentrated the wealth too much. The wealth wasn't spread sufficiently for, for that development to be sustainable. But 
certainly for a while, there is still a feel-good factor in, in Brazil. The, the Brazilian military dictatorship, it goes hard line towards the end of the 60s, but it didn't start off hard line. And it's a much softer military dictatorship than, say, Argentina or Chile, much softer. When the Argentine military dictatorship killed 30,000, um, the, the Brazilian maybe 3,000 top whack. Um, it's, it, it, they're, they're different societies. So uh, certainly at the start of the process, I don't think that people were necessarily looking to Pelé to, to, uh, to be against the government. It's, it, it's, it's very tricky, this, because he, he bowed out of the World Cup in 1970. Uh, and uh, he could, 74, they really wanted him to play, and he didn't. From a safe distance, years afterwards, he said that he didn't play 74 in protest against the military government. Now, he said this at a time when the military government was being looked back on in hindsight as a bad thing. Mm. Um, I don't think there is any truth in his claim. I went in depth with this with, with Mario Zagalo, who was the coach in 70 and 74, and with Tostão, who was his, the centre forward who played with him in 70. Uh, and both of them gave different explanations. Tostão said that in, in, it, it was all about his legacy. He wanted to leave the stage at a high point, which would have been 70. In 74, he wouldn't have been as good, and he didn't want that to be his legacy. And Zagalo stressed the fact that he'd, he'd signed a deal with an American soft drink company. He was, he, he was making his money that way. Hmm. Um, th th I've never spoken to him. I've only, there was only once, because in most of his interviews over the years has been PR. Uh, he's, uh, he's been coaxed into doing this. It took months to get him to do this interview because I think he knows that the questions asked about his political role will, when he's gone, those questions will still be hanging around. So it, at least he, he, he's, he's tried to answer them. He's tried to have some control over his own narrative. But there was once when I tried to interview him, this is in the mid nineties when he was Brazil's sports minister. And he just given an interview saying that at his heyday, he could have done more for footballers, for Brazilian footballers. And I wanted to use that as a way into saying, well, what more could you have done? What do you regret? Um, but at the time, that they would only offer me that if I went to New York uh, and I didn't have money to cross the other side of the city. So, so that project died. And then when he stopped being sports minister, he obviously wasn't, wasn't going to leave himself open to those mm. kind of lines lines of questioning um, but that's obviously a doubt that he has in his own mind what he could have done for Brazilian footballers in terms of freedom of contract and so on I actually don't think there are big doubts in his mind of what he, what he could have done for Brazilian society uh, and uh, in, in that sense I think he, he might well be right I mean maybe we ask for too much for our sportsmen and if you look at the situation of Brazil in comparison say with the United States because his obvious obvious uh contemporary there is is ali yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh ali in, in and and part of this is the differences between brazil and the united states because ali grows in an environment when you know exactly who is white 
and who is black, who is being discriminated and who isn't. Brazil is a little bit more complicated. You know, there's m much more of, of a racial mix, which means it's, it's more difficult to organise. You know, who, who, are the, who is black and who is white? Well, it, it, it kind of depends on social circumstances. And the other thing is, you know, the US as an imperial power was sending its poor young black kids to Vietnam, you know, so they, 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 there's another thing against which to organize that wasn't quite so clear cut in in uh, in Brazil. And so you're asking him for a level of political sophistication, which uh, I personally, I don't think you should be looking for sports stars to provide. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and he, he seems to have come to the conclusion that look, winning the 1970 World Cup was was kind of my me doing my bit. Uh, I mean, Juca Kafuri, the sports writer, uh, is in this. He, he he draws a comparison with Ali as well, and he says, "Well, the, the difference with Muhammad Ali is that he he knew that he would be arrested, but also that he wouldn't be mistreated or maybe killed. But Pele didn't have this guarantee. I mean, does that seem realistic to you? No, uh, and Juca Kafuri, uh, they, they were close." Um, and no, I don't think there was any risk of of uh, uh, perhaps he he may have not been allowed to uh, to stay in Brazil and had he made very very outspoken outspoken uh, statements, which I don't think were necessarily his his views at the time anyway. Mm. Um, but no, I don't think there was there were there was any risk. I mean, the the uh, from from a public relations point of view. And had the Brazilian government mistreated someone with the worldwide fame of, of Pelé, someone who was so useful to them. I mean, it, it is striking that the, the, the two moments at which the black Brazilian has been most important to the national identity come under the most, most authoritarian governments. There's uh, the, the dictatorship, uh, kind of a non-militaristic version of Mussolini of Getulio Vargas in the 1930s, where the, the samba musicians became, from being police targets, they became national heroes. And then in the late 60s uh, and, and, the, and 1970, Pelé uh, uh, becomes like a national hero for the 1970 World Cup. It is strange. It's a contradiction that I've never really fully been able to, to, to understand. Well, there's one of the one of the harshest things that's said about him said about him in this film is is by Paulo Cesar Lima, I think uh, Caju, um, who says, you know, uh, he, that he disappointed me because I when I looked at him, I saw a black person who just accepts everything, who only ever says yes, sir, who's submissive, who doesn't answer back, question or judge. And this is Caju saying, you know, he thought. Uh, this is him saying how disappointed he is that that Pele was just going along with like these these, these generals without he never kicked up any. And I thought this strikes me as very unfair to kind of racialize his acquiescence. You know, I don't know if Mario Zagallo gets all this kind of the same type of stuff thrown at him for what I have no doubt was his his own accommodation with like ultimately, you know, it's not like these people have any control over who's who's running the country. Pele said something like. Um, he has a line in this, which I, someone, he, he's asked quite directly, did you know what was going on? I mean, and, and when they say, when we know what was going on, they're, they're referring here to the fact that this is a re regime that had killed people, that had sort of falsely imprisoned people or imprisoned people without, without trial, without charge, was doing, there was a lot of these types of abuses. Did you know what was happening? And he says, effectively, I can't, I, it would be a lie to say I didn't know there was stuff, some stuff going on. So yeah, I did know 
that that bad things were happening. But we didn't really know either what's true, what's false, what exactly is going on. We didn't really know. You hear things, but it's like, you can't be sure. We're playing football the whole time. And that just seemed to me like quite a, rather than a cop-out, it actually sounded like quite a plausible description of life under a dictatorship. Yeah, and and remember that it is, it's it's not the Argentina dictatorship or the Chilean dictatorship, which set out to eliminate working class organizations. The Brazil one wasn't wasn't like that. At, at its at its worst, the late sixties, early seventies, a lot of the targets are the middle class intelligentsia. Now they're not they're not naturally people that that Pele is is at home with. Mm. Paulo César Caju, Paulo César, uh, who is is a terrific figure. Uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting him on a number of occasions. Um, he's first of all he's ten years younger, so you know he's grown up with. He's seen the 60s, you know, and, and the, the protests from the United States at a, uh, at a formative time in his life. But he, he's also, he's not from upcountry in Minas Gerais and then upcountry in Sao Paulo and then Santos. He's, he's grown up kind of favelas of Rio, which through the geography of Rio means there's a proximity between him and the middle class intellectual uh, intelligentsia. He he started moving in those circles, and he got his political education in in those circles. So his his perspective, I think, is is very different from from that of of Pelé. It's just because because the circumstances of their upbringing and and their generations are are very very different. Um, and the in in terms of of the race issue, I think Pelé could have done more. But to, to put too much on him is, I think, the, the, danger, the, the dangers of, of getting into some kind of Superman complex, you know, where some kind of Superman has to, has to solve society's problems. Mm. And that, 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 I think, is, is, is not healthy for anyone. Yeah. I mean, the, another interesting part of this film, it kind of it, it left me with a different impression of a story that uh, I previously evidently missed big, great chunks of, which is... Joao Saldanha, the manager of Brazil, or the coach of Brazil before the 1970 World Cup, who was replaced by Mario Zagallo in the you know in the lead up to the tournament, and in whatever version of the story I had heard, this Saldanha was a somewhat tragic and hard done by figure who essentially had been kind of booted out of his role because he was, I guess, I guess actually a, a journalist, a kind of a leftist journalist. Sort of a skinny, chain-smoking guy who who seemed quite charming. Spoke great, gave great interviews in English, which is always good for your international reputation, I guess. Um, uh, and and that the generals just hadn't liked this guy. They couldn't control him. They didn't like him, and they got him out of there. What this film is saying is that no, he hated Pele. Was was spreading lies about him. Wanted to drop him from the World Cup, and everybody else was like, actually, Joao, why don't you go instead? Well. Both are true to an extent. Um, there's there's someone here behind the scenes who gets a very very bad name, uh, and uh, well, there's a lot you can throw at him, but he was a bright cookie, and that's João Havelange, who before he became FIFA president was president of Brazil's football association, started just before the 1958 World Cup. Now that's very significant. Now Havelange, it was a stroke of genius from Havelange to appoint João Saldanha. 
I shall explain why. Brazilian football had uh, it had just it was developing, uh, and uh, it was no more dominated solely by Rio and São Paulo. You've also got two other uh, sub-centres, Porto Alegre and Belo Horizonte. And that means that you've, you've suddenly, and remember, all the players play at home at this time, you've suddenly got many more regions all fighting to have their players in the national team. It becomes chaos. Uh, and so he appoints Saldanha because Saldanha is a man who very, very charismatic, who knows his own, his own mind. And in his, in his very first press conference, Saldanha says... These, this is my first 11, blah, 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 blah. These are my substitutes, blah, 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 blah. Kills all of that political infighting and all of those discussions. You've, you've gone with a coach who knows his mind, who knows his team, who's just not going to accept all, all of the political infighting. And that was good enough to, uh, to, to, to get them through qualification and through to the World Cup. But he, he's a little, he's unstable, Saldanha. And uh, the way that they played during qualification, which was a very, very open Four two four would. There's no way that they would have won the World Cup that way, uh, and so it was the right decision to get rid of him as well. But one of the things which is happening with this is he has fallen out badly with Pele. Now this is something which became forgotten very quickly in Brazilian culture, right after Mexico '70 for obvious reasons. Uh, Saldanha was clearly not convinced that Pele could play the World Cup. Uh, he started talking about Pele losing vision, uh, uh, being short-sighted or, or, or so on. But he, he had some backup. Uh, Aimore Moreira, who'd been the coach in 62, was writing articles saying Pele has to be dropped from the team. Um, so there was a current of opinion against this. Now, there, there, there probably was a political dimension to Saldana being sacked. And that Brazilian national team in Mexico 70 were very, very military. Uh, and uh, the fellow who became the coach subsequent to 74, Claudio Coutinho, was a, was a, a military, military man. Um, and and uh, they probably, I don't think they would have been happy with the idea of, of, of a, of a, of a loudmouth communist, which Saldana was, being coach of the national team during the World Cup. But there were solid footballing reasons to get rid of him. I personally, I think it was a stroke of genius to appoint him and a stroke of genius to, to, to get rid of him. Yeah, I mean... You know, and you see how Pelé ultimately performs in the World Cup. I mean, okay, it's not like we're seeing this for the first time. Um, you do think, the, okay, the generals weren't wrong about everything. It was actually important to have this guy involved. But I, I found, I mean, the presentation of this 1970 World Cup, which is the climax of the film, and I, it was sort of interesting the way they left out the whole America part of Pelé's career, which to me is, uh, I would have liked to see, but I guess it's it's always difficult to get the footage together for these types of documentaries. And 1970 is a good uh uh, climactic point but just how kind of solemn the whole thing is at the end like the, there's this kind of almost um uh funereal music it's 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 like almost a sad moment of like he's fi- he has completed it but like he's he's so kind of wrecked so he, he t- talks about the thing that you get is not the trophy it's the relief that's the real prize just the sheer relief of Oh, we didn't lose, you know, like as though if you if you ever really want to be that good, one of the prices that you have to pay is that you can't actually enjoy a minute of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and um, that's especially true in Brazil, where there's only two things that can happen in a World Cup, Brazil win or Brazil lose. That's the way they talk about World Cups, you know, uh, that, that, that one we won, that one we lost. There's only, there's only two possible results. 
So the pressure was really on and the pressure was, was really on for him because he saw that tournament as his defining moment. Um, he's not, he, he is past his best. Uh, if you want to see the best Pele, look at around 62, 63. And he's bulked up by 1970. He, he, he can't, Pele at his absolute best. And the comparison with the way that Pele runs with the ball and Maradona runs with the ball, I think is, is wonderful because you know, we, for, for Maradona, the ball is tied to his left foot. For Pele, I often think of the ball as kind of bouncing alongside him like, in a, like a happy, obedient puppy. Um, but when he was surging through, and I watch him against Benfica in, in at the end of '62, you know, it's like watching someone from a different species. He doesn't quite have that in 1970, but he's got other things as well. I mean, the, sometimes it's the genius of simplicity, the pass that he gives to Jairzinho for the goal against England, which effectively mm. is the goal that wins the World Cup. So many of that team have told me that. Well, you would you would say that Tim. That, that is a that is a great moment in the in the film, though. Just the the way that they do that is 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 beautiful. They sort of freeze it just at the moment the Pele controls the ball, and you can sort of see these three English defenders who are all about to be taken out of the game here by this little pass uh, into space. It's brilliantly done. It's the simplicity of genius. The little pass for, for Carlos Alberto for the the, the fourth goal against um, against Italy in the final. Again, it's it's the simplicity of of, of genius. Uh, and some of the th- some of the, the things that are most remembered from that World Cup are goals that he didn't score, you know, yeah. the dribble around uh, around the Uruguayan goalkeeper, or or the attempt to score from the halfway line in the first game against against Czechoslovakia, which Zagalu said to me that he thought that Pele trying to score from his own half was a response to Saldana saying that he was short sighted. can't see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I put that one to Toshdown as well, and he said that's ridiculous. But that that, that was what Zagalo said. Hmm. Yeah, is he the greatest uh, of all time for you? I mean, I, can't, I keep seeing Tim uh, over the last little while that Cristiano Ronaldo has apparently broken the all-time goal-scoring record uh, uh, in you know, and it's and it's seven hundred and uh, seven hundred and fifty, seven hundred and sixty something. This closes with uh, you know, Pele scored one thousand two hundred eighty-three goals in one thousand three hundred and sixty-seven games. Um, it seems like Ronaldo's actually got a long way to go. Yeah, I, I, but I don't like. That when I mean, Pele has used that himself against Messi, you know, when, when you've scored a thousand goals, come back and we'll talk. You know, I, I think that's a that's a that's a very poor grounds on which the base is is claim. Um, the, the the greats are not about statistical accumulation, uh, and uh, uh, and Pele, a lot of his games were were friendlies. You know, I mean, you got to remember this is the day bef- the days before TV. And there were times during his career that Brazilian TV is showing games for free, <laughs> showing games for free, not paying any money for it. So on Santos, they abandon South America's Champions League, the Copa Libertadores, just because it's financially, it's suicide. You know, you've you got to travel all the way to another country for one game. There's no TV revenue. Uh, and what, what, what makes economic sense in that situation? Um, if you're going to travel, then let's pack in four or five games in the in, in the same country, uh, and uh, we'll make our we'll make our money that way. So th- there's a lot. They, they did become a Santos. They did become the Harlem Globetrotters. So the greatness of Pele, to see it in in this kind of statistical accumulation, I think is 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 a, a very very weak argument. The greatness of Pele is in the big games, and time and time again when it really matters. He rises to the occasion and he's he's absolutely fantastic. I dislike these arguments about who's the greatest ever because they always become attritional. And I, I believe that these players are 
to be appreciated uh you know that they belong to all of us and and and, and let's enjoy them more than than argue about them um i i, I wonder sometimes between uh, between the big 3 for me which are pele maradona and di stefano di stefano for me is the most influential in the development of the game um maradona I've never seen anything before or since like the heights that, that Maradona hit in the 1986 World Cup. But Pelé, over the course of, of so many years, when it really mattered, was so exceptionally brilliant um, that he is, uh, at, the, at the moment, I'm probably going for Pelé. Um, but so if you ask me this time next month, I might have a different answer. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 